Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. What the truth? You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here are your hosts, Rob Dalrymple and Vinny Angelo. Well, hello, everyone. Welcome in. And we can also say happy birthday. I guess it's not a birthday, but happy episode. Happy anniversary. (laughs) Happy anniversary, sweetie. Uh, You and me. I wouldn't go that far. Oh, come on. Where's where's the brother? Okay, so I think it calls for a song. Well, if that's all you, then I'll play the drum. Beat. I think I think we need to sing. You could so, do that. Yeah. I mean, are you ready to, to you know, again, no, no, no. I, I've expressed to you how much I was hurt when you laughed the last time. But so I'm, I thought I'm, you were making a joke. Well, I kind of am. <laughs> People don't even know why we're uh, celebrating. Yeah. Or no, not yet it? at all. But that, we'll okay. get to that. That's we, we know that's all that's important. And um. <laughs> So I'm a little bit concerned about being vulnerable right now because I've been so abused. And my, my therapist said that I, I should go ahead and do it again and, and it'll be good for me. See, that's funny because my therapist said that Rob should not sing anymore. <laughs> a lot of people said Rob should not sing anymore, including start, start with my wife. Yeah, <laughs> and then, that's why I always sat in the front row when I was pastoring. So I could, I could sing and there's nobody, and no one will hear nobody in front nice. of me that can't hear me. So, yeah, that's hilarious. So it, it, this is our hundredth episode together, right? Yeah. 100 episodes together. It's amazing oh. that we've, like I told you in the, in the text message, it feels like a thousand, but, but <laughs> it's only been a hundred. So <laughs> have, have, did you use that on Tony? Like your 30th year anniversary? No, like, no, we, no. We've been married 30 years. But yeah, no, we were like married 34 years <laughs> last week. Um, and I did not use that on her. It feels like a thousand. No, you should but, have written that in the card. Yeah. But uh, Jesus did say blessed are those who persevere. And I didn't say that to Tony. I'm saying that to you. <laughs> Who persevere in the trial? Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds. That's my theme verse when I go into this podcast with you. So you will overcome. You'll be yeah. victorious in this uh, podcast series. Yeah. One who all overcomes right. will not face the second death. I'm just living through the first one. Now, yeah, I was so. just going to say. <laughs> all right, we That's, better get started. They're like, this yeah. has been like three minutes, and they haven't even gotten into anything yet. <laughs> you they're they're hitting the were... fast forward thirty seconds at a time button. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Happy anniversary to you, sweetie. We're going to continue on through these seven seals. We probably won't get through all seven of them today. Uh, We started talking about this last week. I think this week we're going to unwrap it just a little bit more. Let's review, though. I I think we talked last week about maybe some Jesus passages, like Mm -hmm. how Mark 13 is misunderstood as maybe being an end times passage. And it's like, no, that's describing the temple primarily, uh, the destruction of the temple. But we oftentimes think that the seals that are being unlatched starting in chapter six, these are all telling specific events on what happens at the end of the world. Is is this what's, you know, the way we should be thinking about them? Right, right. And we set the foundation for this last week. So I've done a lot of t- teachings where people will get to the seven seals and they'll go, okay, when is this happening? Has this already started? You know, what's going on? And the idea is that the seals reflect some futuristic thing that takes place in the last days prior to Jesus' coming, and there are indications of the imminent return of Jesus. And the answer is the seals have been unsealed, revealed since the time of Jesus. Jesus broke the seals because he was worthy to break them because he was slain. So there's no reason for delaying 2,000 years. And then what I discussed was, now Mark 13, Matthew 24, we can debate whether there are sermons about the end times or not. And again, using the word end times, maybe with air quotes here. The idea of end times being some futuristic thing, but the beginning of that ser- of those sermon of that oh, of that sermon, Mark thirteen, Matthew twenty four, mm-hmm. at least the beginning of it, Jesus is describing. Well, look, the events that I'm discussing right now in terms of the destruction of the temple, that's not going to happen right away. Instead, there'll be false prophets, there'll be wars and rumors of wars, there'll be famines and earthquakes and pestilence in many places. They're going to put you in prison and persecute you, uh, but that's not the end, and so. That's a really important because the seals parallel that early part of Mark 13, as we discussed last week. And if the early part of Mark 13 is saying, that's not the end. These are just signs of what actually happens throughout all of history. It's just the way history goes. There's bad rulers. They bring in deception and false teaching. They create wars. That causes famines. That brings about pestilence and death. Oh, and by the way, you guys are going to get persecuted as well. That's just the normal course of events. And Jesus is indicating that those signs are not indicative of the imminent return of Jesus, let's say. Mm -hmm. They are simply signs as to what happens when humanity remains in power. So what I'm arguing then with the seven seals is, and this is common, not universally agreed upon, but commonly held in the scholarly community, is that the seven seals reflect what happens when humanity is in power, 
the destruction that they bring to the creation, or at least the seals emphasize the destruction they bring upon humanity, and the effects are felt by humanity. And they are not indications of the return of Jesus. In fact, the question is going to be, how long, O oh Lord, are you going to allow this to occur? And then one last thought, and that is that God's allowing them to remain in power because of his grace, because of his mercy, because if he brings judgment now, it's the end, and the nations have no more time to repent. So God's delay in his final justice is an act of mercy because he's giving the nations time to repent. And then we'll add more to that as we proceed. But I think that hopefully summarizes the seven seals, understanding that we are to take to the text as we proceed now. Yeah. Okay. So let's take a, a quick look at the first six seals. And this is even just one of those interesting uh, structural things where yes, when we yes, see these, yes. these sequences of seals and trumpets and bowls, there's always like six things that happen in this long break. And then the seventh thing happens, right? And uh, the seals and trumpets that happens yeah, oh, after right. the okay. sixth seal and before the seventh seal and after the sixth trumpet and before the seventh trumpet, there's what we call an interluder, something just inserted in the middle of the text and you have to wait until mm -hmm. you get to the seventh one. Yeah. Yeah. So it's really interesting, but let's look at the, uh, the first six. So let's uh, start with verses one and two yeah. of chapter six. Now I watched when the lamb opened one of the seven seals and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, come. And I looked and behold, a white horse and its rider had a bow and a crown was given to him. And he came out conquering and to conquer. I love that. <laughs> yeah. Conquering and to conquer. That's just, I, I love the poetry there. Like automatically I'm reading this. I've already learned, especially from hearing you that colors matter. Colors are going to be symbolic. And I'm just thinking that white is going to be indicative of jesus of the christ right it, it seems like there's like a couple different options you have the option of this is jesus or this is or this is christ or this is the antichrist right um where what, what do you think is happening here well it's interesting how we read antichrist into the book of revelation even though it's mm -hmm. never never occurred so that's another topic for another for another day also but i think actually the best that's thing another that's another topic for first and second john yeah and yeah, <laughs> Cause that's yeah the, exactly cause that's the only place where it's the, the only place that occurs yeah very yeah. good um I think the best way to start here actually is to give the big picture as to what's going on and then we'll look at the details. So as I mentioned at the beginning, we argued last week that the first five seals in Revelation 6 parallel Jesus' sermon of Mark 13 and Matthew 24. Now note Mark 13 verses 5 and 6 says, see to it, this is the first part of the beginning of Jesus' speech, see to it that no one misleads you. Many will come in my name saying I am he and will mislead many. And so the first thing to note is that what every good leader or dictator or totalitarian regime needs before they take their nation to war, remember the second seal is going to be war or, and warfare and bloodshed, is they need a propaganda machine. They need to mm -hmm. say, the reason why we're justified going into this war, the reason why the enemy is bad and needs to be conquered, the reason why it's okay to send your sons and daughters to fight for our regime is because they're the bad guys and they're doing these evil things and we're the good guys and we need, we need to do these things. Now, that's kind of a large scale picture of what I think the first seal is doing, which tells you that I don't think this is Jesus, but we'll get to that mm -hmm. in a little bit. The first seal is false teaching, false propaganda, false professions, deception, and it parallels Jesus' sermon in Mark 13, see to it that no one misleads you. And by the way, we can spend like a couple hours on this topic because it's so significant. And that is, this happens at every level of thinking and of theology and of ethics. And that is, we justify our actions here with our with teaching there. We justify our actions over there or our non-actions with our teaching and our theology. And so theology and teachings are often used to justify our ethics and our behavior. And I think this is the same idea. We have to be careful that false prophets have not come in amongst us and have deceived us. The next thing to note is that Jesus is addressing the church. So in Mark 13, he's speaking to his disciples. Mm -hmm. False teachers will mislead many saying, I am the Christ. Don't let them mislead you. And I think if we take that to this passage here, then we think that the false teaching and false deception is actually encroaching on the church. So look at Matthew's version, by the way. Matthew's version of the sermon, he kind of gives the same thing at the beginning of Mark 13 that we discussed at the beginning of Matthew 24. And then Matthew kind of fi finishes that first part of a sermon, of Jesus' sermon, by saying this in Matthew 24, verse 23. 
He says, then if anyone says to you, behold, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe him, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, even if, po if possible, even the elect. And so there again, we the problem then is, is the false teaching is actually a danger and a threat to the church and the people of God trying to deceive them. And we need to be careful about that. So let's start there. And one last thought, I just said one last thought a minute ago, but that's just the preacher's one last thought doesn't really mean anything at all. It's, it's, it's not lying. It's just, oh, I had another one. So let me add to the previous one. I thought <laughs> uh -huh. it really was the last thought, but it's not because I'm adding another one. And that is one of the things that I've discussed a number of times is that the popular end times understanding of the world, we're the good guys, they're the bad guys, the seals, trumpets, and bowls are God's wrath on them, not on us. It doesn't affect us. Uh, we're, we're exempt. And, and some even say we're going to actually be raptured out of the way because we're the good guys. God's going to take us out of the way before he punishes the world. This us them mentality is a very, very dangerous mentality in so many ways. That's why I stressed when we were looking at in the book of Revelation chapter five, a couple of weeks ago, that the nations, uh, the word nations occurs, you know, 20 some odd times, but the first two occurrences of the nations are He's redeemed us from every nation or a people for his own possession from every nation. Mm -hmm. We came from the nations. And then the end of the book of Revelation says the nations walk by the light of the, of the new Jerusalem. And then in the middle, you have the nations waging war against Christ, the nations waging war against the people of God. So yeah, they're opposed to God's people, but they are the people to whom we are to love because they're the people from whom we came and the people uh, to whom we are to be witnesses to as you said, let's love our enemies. So when we make this us them mentality, it creates a lot of problems. And you know what? I'm going to add one more thing here too, because it just, it just came to me. So I wasn't lying again before when I said one last thing, because I meant it, but now I'm adding <laughs> one last thing again. So I was teaching at, at the university the other day and we're talking about worldviews. And I was explaining, look, one of the things that's easy to do is to make the other, the other. And when you make the other, the other, it's easy to demonize them. And so you, the Declaration of Independence refers to the Native Americans as savages. And so you can describe them as savages and they're, and they're horrible people and they're evil. And then all you need is the Native Americans to, to attack one group of settlers and say, see, that re and it reinforces your paradigm, your understanding of their mm -hmm. savages. And I said, that same thing happens in my experience in the Israel-Palestine co conflict. We make one side or the other, the evil savages, who deserve to be uh, uprooted because, for example, the Palestinians are dangerous Muslim terrorists who want to eliminate and annihilate the Jewish people and, and all others and their belief in jihad and holy war. But you go there and you sit in a person's home and the Palestinian home and they give you coffee because that's just what they're going to give you. And it's really, really potent coffee mm -hmm. in really small cups, by the way, because you are not going to drink a lot of this. And then they're going to send their son, even though I have no money, they're going to find a couple dollars and, you know, they're going to send their son to buy some snacks because they're going to, they're going to feed you. They're going to give you hospitality. And then you think when you leave, you're like, these are moms and dads and sons and daughters, just like my family is. And they're not savage terrorists. And you go to Israel and you, and you sit in the homes of Jews and rabbis and others. And you're like, yeah, you know what? And, and both people say they actually respect the people on the other side of the wall. They fear them because they don't know them very well, but they want to live in peace with them. And all of a sudden it begins to diffuse uh, the propaganda machine. So propaganda machines work really well in ignorance by demonizing the other, and then they're used to justify the war. So it makes sense that if the second seal is warfare, that the first seal is false teachings that make the warfare um, sound reasonable. Just to bring in a more contemporary illustration as well sure. to what you were talking about how the dehumanization of others because mm -hmm. many of us might th say okay well that's theoretical and you know i'm never going to come across that and or i view the palestinian a certain way but right. we challenge people uh, a lot in in a class i teach on politics at our church and uh when it comes to the issue of immigration, which is yes. a hot, but I mean, this is, this is a more polarizing issue in America right now than even something like abortion mm. and within the church, it's polarizing. And right. regardless, and our thing that we say is regardless of where you stand on the issue, you need to change your language. Like for even, for instance, we oftentimes just refer to, we, we refer to just undocumented peoples 
as or even let's say we refer to illegal immigrants as just illegals we make it we make it short well if i'm just referring to as the illegals the illegals the illegals that strips away the humanity and, and, and you demonize them exactly and yeah. so you could you could have a strong understanding of uh or 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 ethic and policy in terms of what what you think border security should look like but mm -hmm. the moment you turn them into the illegal they're no longer a human being and you're not thinking you know that 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 mother that father that uncle that brother whoever that person is they're still a human being just like you have an uncle or a brother or a son or whatever they're just as human as your kid or as your spouse or whatever and and so that we we need to be careful about the terminology we use because yeah. once we just start making people objects it, we live in a society where it's so easy to objectify we're, we're taught to objectify everything anyway right and we're blurring the line between what is real and what is fake with ai and all the sort of thing mm -hmm. we need to take every opportunity to relish people who are made in the image of god and and start there regardless of what path you take it's got to start with the, the person being humanized yeah and even if you think well i'm not dehumanizing them but the name illegal out of categorizes them as exactly. a criminal. They committed a exactly. crime. And yeah, they've committed a crime. They crossed the border. Uh, by the way, Jesus crossed the border when he was yes. his family did when he was a baby because they went to Egypt to escape King Herod. Mm -hmm. And then mm -hmm. you find out why why have you crossed the border? And one of the best things you can do on the issue of immigration is go to the border mm. and meet people on both sides and understand mm -hmm. what's going on. Why would these people be leaving their lands? Why would they, why would Syrians flee Syria? Why would mm -hmm, they, they do mm -hmm. these things? Why, why would Mexicans come across the border? They don't want to. They'd rather stay in their own home where they speak their language of the people, where they're not foreigners, where they're not going to be looked down upon, where they know the language, they know the culture, where that's where their family is. Something's causing them to have to go. I have no other hope except to leave. Mm -hmm. and, and even, by the way, some of the minors that are sent off on their own, like what parent would do that? And the answer is a parent who knows there's no hope for my son or daughter here. So even though it means sending my 13-year-old son on a journey by himself that I don't know if he's going to survive, at least there's hope that he'll make it there and survive. And I'm willing to be separate from my child whom I love and die, right, because of the separation with the understanding that maybe they have hope. That's That changes the game when you start personalizing it and individualizing it and hearing stories. And I think that's one of the keys that we want to bring out. Yeah, I, I don't like it when my six-year-old goes out front in our driveway or our court alone. Yeah, let alone will I send him on a trip? How bleak must life be yeah, in, exactly. in order to risk that? So, right. So this popular understanding then, uh, in terms of like them, us, good versus evil, which that's going to be there in a sense in an apocalypse. You're going to have this mm -hmm. cosmic battle of good sure. versus evil. This comes largely in light of reading the seals as it relates maybe to the book of Exodus. Uh, and in the book of Exodus, you would definitely have a good, bad. It's God's saying, let my people go. And you have these plagues against the pharaohs, the pharaoh and the Egyptians, but not against the Israelites. So should we be seeing, you know, should we be using Exodus thought here? I know we'll definitely see Exodus language uh, when it comes to the bowls of wrath. Uh, but should and we the trumpets, yeah. 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 So I wouldn't bring the Exodus imagery in here because I, I don't think that's what's going on. The Exodus imagery definitely comes in with the trumpets and the bowls. And there's no question about that. And we'll have to discuss why is John using that Exodus imagery there. I don't think that's what's happening here. And the imagery of the first seven seals or the first six seals is not actually Exodus imagery. So to make that extrapolation, I think is actually just kind of kind of reaching a little bit. So, yeah. Okay. So one question about the first uh, writer and it's its relation to Jesus. So popular understanding we talked about, it's either Jesus maybe or an Antichrist. You're saying it's an Antichrist. But on a cursory level, I'm reading, well, we wouldn't say Antichrist because we okay, say yeah, that's yeah. other okay. language. Uh, yeah, yeah, we won't, we won't use that. But it, it totally makes sense just on a cursory reading yes, of yes. this on why it would be Jesus. You're seeing a writer on a white horse. We already, we're going to identify later in, in chapter six that white is the color given to those who have been beheaded. You know, this writer has a crown. We know that Jesus is sitting on the throne with God and he already came out conquering and to conquer. And this is, Nikaio, this is this this overcoming mm -hmm. that uh, we know that we're supposed to do. We already read this seven times in the um, in the letters. So why wouldn't we describe this as being Jesus, or why wouldn't you land there? So there's actually three different views on terms okay. of who or what the rider on the white horse represents. There's two views that seem very similar, and the first two both contend that the rider on the white horse actually is Jesus. 
this is not very popular and the popular understanding of the end times it is but overall amongst the scholarly community they they agree that this is some false christ or false teachers but those who affirm that it's jesus do so by appealing to what you just said john's description of jesus's return in, in revelation chapter 19 he's described there as riding on a white horse and the writer here of course is on a, is on a white horse and so it seems to be hey rider on the white horse in chapter 6 rider on a white horse in chapter 19 we know chapter 19 is Jesus, therefore this is Jesus also. And I'll discuss that more as, as we go. But the difference between the first two views, and I know the first two views both say that it's Jesus, and, it's a, and this difference is a very significant difference, is whether or not the rider on the first horse is Jesus at his first coming or Jesus at his second coming. So again, there's mm. three views. Two of them say that this is Jesus. Those two views that say it's Jesus, some say Jesus coming like in the gospel sense. Okay. This is talking about Jesus back then. And so now we know that everything else is happening after Jesus in the gospels. Some others will say, no, this is Jesus coming in the rapture sense. Got because it. the first seven seals is the beginning of what might uh -huh. be deemed the tribulation in the popular world. And it begins with the coming of Jesus. So this must be the rapture. So that's, that's kind of the popular understanding there. The third view, uh, which I would hold to, and I think majority of scholars do, says that the rider on the white horse represents false Christ and false prophets. And again, I don't use antichrist language. Sure. I think we're just importing antichrist language into the text. And we don't know what antichrist language means or meant in the first century because it's only used in first John and in first and first and second John. And in first and second John, it's like, you guys know what I'm talking about. So John never explains it. As you've heard that the antichrist mm -hmm. is coming, we're like, uh, that's the first time it's ever appeared in the New Testament, John. Would you please clarify yourself? And John goes on to say, so also many antichrists have come. And then he goes, and this is the last hour. It's like, uh, so John's use of that language is never clarified because his readers knew what he meant. And so it's hard to import antichrist, antichrist language in the book of Revelation here. So I'm, I just try to be careful with that. But the third view says the right on the right horse then is false Christ or false prophets. As I noted already, this totally parallels mark 13 the beginning of jesus speech where he begins by saying false teachers will arise if this writer doesn't represent jesus then the question then becomes kind of what you're asking then is well what do we do with the fact that he's on a white horse and jesus is on a white horse and my answer is that one of the things that we'll see evidently throughout the book of revelation is that satan the beasts the false prophets the enemies of christ always try to imitate christ mm -hmm. And so I mentioned a number of times, the word lamb occurs 28 times in the book of Revelation. 27 of those times, it's used of Jesus. The only exception is the second beast who had two horns like a lamb, but he spoke like a dragon. Hmm. The idea of that is he looks like a lamb because the lamb is Jesus, but John's like, but it's not a lamb. He spoke like a dragon. And so we see that false teachings and false prophets and false things are imitating Jesus. And I think that's how you account for that. Hey everyone, we want to thank you for joining us on today's podcast. And we want to remind you that everything we provide at Determined Truth is free of charge. And this even includes all of the teaching that Rob does on a weekly basis to pastors in India and around the world. We don't have any supporters that get special behind the scenes access. But we can only do this with the generous support that comes from those of you who can afford to give. So if you would prayerfully consider supporting us with anything from $5 a month or more, we will continue to work hard to challenge the church to be the church. To give, go to DeterminedTruth.com and click on the Give tab or follow the link in the show notes. Hey, uh, just a kind of an impromptu commercial that we'll mm -hmm. have. Uh, you, you're starting to do some new things on social media, right, regarding webinars? Yeah, so we have some webinars coming up. In fact, if you're listening to this, the day it launches, October 9th, it goes of live. Of 2023. Of 2023, thank you. Mm -hmm. Tomorrow, October 10th, I'll be on a webinar with Nelson Crable, whom we had on our podcast a few weeks mm -hmm. ago. You can sign up for that webinar on nemi.network, N-E-M-E dot network. And if you go to Nemi Network and scroll down for their uh, webinar series, you'll see the webinar that Nelson and I are doing. And if, if you listen to this after October 9th, which almost everybody is, you can still go there and register for the webinar and then you'll get it's recorded. So you'll get it. But if you go to it live, you can participate by asking us questions. And so what Nelson and I are doing is Nemi has been doing a series of webinars on understanding peace building, especially with regards to the Middle East, Israel, Palestine, and how do we do this? And the understanding was, well, one of the problems that people have with peace building in Israel-Palestine is 
we have these theological convictions that many do that says Israel's the good guys, God promised them the land, Palestinians have to leave, and the understanding of the end times and how it affects that particular conflict. So Nelson and I are going to be answering a lot of those kind of questions and then taking questions from, from the audience. Then following up from that, on November 2nd of 2023, the Determined Truth will actually begin a series of webinars. We've been trying to do webinars for a long time. We're finally getting the series started. So on D November 2nd, Daniel Hawk and myself will be doing kind of a follow-up from that NIMI webinar, and this will be on Determined Truth. So go to DeterminedTruth.com, and you can register for that webinar and attend it live on November 2nd, or you can watch it later and you know get all the, all the goodies there. Just You have to register for it. Registration is free, but a donation is, uh, is an option if you want to donate to cover the cost of the webinar. And what Daniel and I will be talking about is the biblical theology that comes from the book of Joshua. So you have this issue of, did God promise the land of the Jewish people? Is it their land? Did they have a right to it? And therefore they can retake the land. But you also have this issue, which I think is the most problematic issue. And that is when the Israelites took the land back from the Canaanites, they slaughtered the Canaanites. And what does the book of Joshua say? How do we understand that? Just, just Joshua alone, I think is a problem because how do we deal with a violent God who's condoning violence and ordering the slaughtering of the innocents, especially as we just said, like, you go to the Canaanites and you sit in their house like Rahab and you're like, hey, she's actually a pretty good person. Why don't you work for us and we'll spare your family? So what do we do with this? That God is authorizing the slaughtering of the native people in the, of the Canaanites. And then we'll discuss, Daniel has done a lot of work with that, with settler colonialism in American history and how we did the same thing. We used Joshua to justify the slaughtering of the Native Americans. And then we'll discuss how that is sometimes used by some evangelicals and, other, and even some Israelis. Uh, not many, to justify the slaughtering of the Palestinians. And mm -hmm. so uh, that'll be a wonderful discussion on Joshua and violence and the violence of the biblical God and how do we reconcile all that. And that'll be on this November 2nd and sign up at DeterminedTruth.com. Nice. Cool. Let's get into the second seal. Yes. So this is a rider on a red horse. Uh, so this is chapter six, verses three and four. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come. And out came another horse, bright red, its writer was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. Hmm. Right, now, I, we've noted before that the sword used in the book of Revelation, that there's two words for sword. Mm -hmm. And John is clear and careful to distinguish the sword of Jesus from the sword of the enemies. And in this instance, this is a different sword than the one that comes out of Jesus' mouth, a different word uh, for the sword. This is clearly not the same sword that proceeds out of the mouth of Jesus. And so this writer represents war and violence, which, as I mentioned, always is preceded by false teaching and propaganda and things of that nature. The next thing to notice is that in verse four, it says that those who are killed by this writer are slain. It was, it was given that men would slay one another and a great sword was given to him in verse four. And the word for slay is actually used eight times in the book of Revelation. Four of those instances are referring to Jesus as the lamb that was slain. The fifth occurrence is where John depicts the, altar, the souls under the altar in the fifth seal. So we're about to get to it. And it says in verse nine of chapter six is those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained or which they had. The seventh occurrence is referring to the judgment of Babylon in Revelation chapter 18. And it says that in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all who have been slain on the earth. Now, you could argue in 18 verse 24 that this, the slain there includes more than just the people of God. But we know it includes the people of God because it says the blood of the prophets, of the saints, and of all who have been slain on the earth. Now, there's an eighth occurrence in chapter 13, which goes back to the point that we just made. And that is, one of the heads of the beast was as if it had been slain. And what we'll discuss in more detail in chapter 13 is that the beast is described in a way that makes you think it's Jesus because he was slain the same way Jesus was. In fact, the language in chapter five of Jesus being slain, the language of the beast being slain in chapter 13 are actually it's identical phrase. Mm. So the point of that then is, is the word slay refers to the killing of God's people. It's possible that it could extend to all the nations also in chapter 18. And then it's also extended to the beast, but that's only because the beast is imitating Christ and God's people. And so the point then is that the rider on the second horse is killing Christians. Hmm. He's killing more than Christians. I don't have a problem with that, but he's killing Christians. And that's one of the points that I want to make. The idea that 
It's this us them mentality and the seals are happening to them and we're the good ones like in Exodus. We're exempt from it. Doesn't fit the text at all. We are suffering and God's people are suffering. And that's why the fifth seal is going to say, how long, oh Lord, because they're suffering and how long do we have to endure this? Mm-hmm. Flying right along. The third seal, chapter six, verses five and six. When he opened the third seal, I heard the li- the third living creature say, come. And I looked and behold, a black horse and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not harm the oil and the wine. All right. Now, this is denarius- really, this is really interesting real quick, because obviously the, the second seal that, that second writer in red is bad it's it's evil yes you, you would assume that this judgment or whatever is happening in this third seal is bad as well but you have a voice coming from the midst of the four living creatures which we already learned in chapter four and five this is going to be around the throne room of god right, right. so this is just it, interesting on a first time read right on on like yeah. what's being connected here if if this is bad why are we now hearing someone from the gallery chiming in because you're being reminded that God's sovereignly in control. Mm. It comes from the throne or a voice from the throne or from the four living creatures. So the question is going to be, how long, oh Lord, are you going to let this happen? And one of the things that they're reminded of is, I'm in control. It may not look that way. It may look like evil's in control. In control. Your suffering may look like evil's in control. It may look like Caesar's on the throne, but I'm the one on the throne. And I have my control over these things. So yeah, I'm letting this go on for a little longer, a little while longer because of my mercy and grace, uh, but I am, I'm the one that's in control. So yeah. Mm. Now let's clarify. A denarius is a day's wages. And some of your translations might say that. So a denarius is a day's wages. So the use of scales indicates that we're weighing out food for sale or purchase. That's just the way it worked in the ancient marketplace. And the price of food is heavily inflated. So it says a quart of wheat for a denarius or a day's pay and three quarts of barley for a denarius. Now, a quart of wheat represents enough food to feed one person for a day. Mm. So a day's pay feeds one person. That means there's no money left over for taxes or for home or for any other expenses. And there's no other money left over for anybody else in the household. Remember, they didn't live in single family homes or or single individual homes. Mm -hmm. And so that's a severe uh, uh, inflation. Remember, grain is like a staple food in the economy. So grains being sold at 12 times the rate of inflation. Then it says three quarts of barley for a denarius. Now, three quarts of barley is enough food. Obviously, it's lower quality, so it's going to be the food of the poor. You want to eat grain if you can, but if you can't afford grain to feed your whole family, then you have to buy barley. And this is enough food to feed three persons for a day. So yeah, we got three members of our household. We'll at least buy some barley. And it's eight times the rate of inflation. But again, remember... If you got more than three people in your family, you can't feed everybody. And remember, you can't pay taxes. You can't pay any other expense. You know, your water bill, your electricity, the air conditioner. Oh, okay, they didn't have those things. You know, your gasoline, right? To, for your Harley, things yep. like that. Yep. So this high rate of inflation on staple foods like wheat and barley would have been disastrous for the poor. Remember, the wealthy are like, well, they're paying a little bit of extra money for a loaf of bread, but they, it's fine. They can afford it. It's the poor. And here's the next thing that's important. This is a common effect of war. If you just, I don't know if you've been following, but the last few months, wars broke up, broke out in the Sudan again. There's two Mm -hmm. military people. They uh, assumed control over the country for a period of time. And then they agreed that after, after a little while that they'd establish a democratic society. And then they realized, you know what, actually, I don't want to step down from power. You step down from power. And they started a war. And one of the next responses of, of a war is, a humanitarian crisis and the nation united nations and other nations are trying to get food because as soon as you start a war you stop a lot of the normal industry that happens and that means less food available or inflation that goes up uh, because of, of access to it and uh, this is this is horrible so this is a natural outflow of war and this is what happens when humanity is in power they have false teaching and false prophets to promote their ideology and their false doctrines. They create wars, wars create famines, and famines and devastation of that nature affect the poor most most specifically. Hmm. It finishes this phrase saying, don't 
harm or don't damage the oil and the wine. Uh, this is interesting because we'll, we'll read later in, in in one of our interviews. I forget if it was with David DeSilver, whoever it was. We talked about like a diminishing list of goods. Mm-hmm. And so uh, knowing ahead what's happening in the story where yeah, you know, like yeah. just how they value things. I'm looking at this and it's like, well, why would we have care for damaging the oil and the wine? Uh, or not it, damaging the oil. Or not damaging it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so why is this phrase here? It, it just seems like an odd phrase. Or yeah, is it just so, a symbolic thing? Or is there something behind this that we're, we're wanting to look at? Yeah. Oil and the wine, most likely. And, and we're not certain, but I'm pretty convinced of this myself. That oil and wine represent the comforts of life. And the implication is, is that the goods of the wealthy are not negatively impacted. And it's the goods of the poor, the staple products of the poor. And there's actually um, a very significant and relevant understanding of the Greco-Roman world and the way the empire worked. Uh, and David De Silva uh, has written on this. And I put a blog on this, taking a lot of the things from David De Silva and kind of put it, putting it all together. And Again, remember this, the poor, the Christian church, most Christians were members of the poor. So it goes back to the point of the effects of the seals are happening and impacting the Christians. False prophets and false Christ will try to deceive you, right? War, they will slay Christians because the word slay is used often for the killing of Christians. And Jesus is the lamb that was slain. And now the negative impact of famine and of increase of the price of grain and of barley which affects all the poor are affecting Christians because Christians are, most of the Christians are comprised of the poor. So what De Silva discusses, and I mentioned in one of my blogs from a couple of years ago, is that in the first century, the city of Rome had a small group, but a very wealthy and massively powerful group. And the list of goods that you were referring to in Revelation mm-hmm. chapter 18 that are in diminishing order of value. And the last item on the value was slaves and human lives. And I think that was the conversation with Dana Harris. When we brought Dan, that up. that's what it was with, yeah. 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 And so what you see in Rome is this massive amount of wealth come into Rome. And there's all kinds of stories of Roman historians referring to the fact that you could travel the world to find this animal and that animal and that kind of wood and ivory and gold. Or you could just go to Rome and see them all. Because all this commodity and all this enterprise went to fund Rome. And the entire economy of the Roman world was bent on facilitating the, the wealth and opulence of the city of Rome. And that's why in Revelation 18, when Babylon's destroyed, it says the kings of the earth weep and, and moan because mm. they sold gold or, or ivory or they sold wood and certain tables or flowers and their wealth of their, of their kingdom went to Rome and that uh, financed them. And then it says the merchants weep and mourn. And then it says the sailors and shipmasters weep and mourn because all of them profited from mm-hmm. Rome, even though all this was at the expense and on the backs of the poor. <laughs> this is Alexander the Great standing on the the, yeah. the edge of India crying, but he has nothing else to conquer. <laughs> I I wish I knew about China like, yeah, exactly. go, or, or the indigenous peoples of Native America. I'd go after yeah, them too. Yeah. yeah. All right. So what happened then is you have this massive amount of, we- of wealthy people in Rome. And the problem became you didn't have enough servants. You didn't have enough citizens in Rome to like, care for and attend for their needs. You know, they needed more massage therapists, more mm-hmm. chefs, more cooks, more merchants. This so is like what, American culture right here. Yeah. Like we're, we're <laughs> sorry. You're, you're, you're going somewhere that we need to go, by the way. Uh-huh. That is a path we need to discuss. And we will certainly, I think certainly do that as, as we continue, but that's a really relevant point and very perceptive. So what the Romans did then is they said, well, how do we get more people to come live in Rome and kind of like take care of us? And so what they said is, I know what we'll do. Now, by the way, they had many a slave. You know, they just conquer different peoples and they get the slaves and they bring the slaves in. But that still wasn't enough. So Rome decided in the first century, I think it was the first century, to offer free grain to all Mm -hmm. citizens of Rome. And I say citizens, I mean residents. All residents of Rome get free grain. Now, you're going to come because you're trying to survive. Mm -hmm. And if you're trying to survive and there's a famine somewhere and the price of grain just went up where you can barely even feed one person in your family, just go live in Rome. It's, it's horrific living conditions. You want to talk about one of the worst places in the history of the world to live for the average individual. It's Rome. It was unbelievably foul death and disease and all kinds of stuff. But you go there because, well, at least I get free grain. So any money I make, I can use on some other basic necessities and I can survive. So you have all these people that came to Rome for the free grain. Now, the problem with that is 
that Rome went to Egypt, Rome went to Syria, Rome went to the, the bread baskets of the Roman Empire and said, this is how much we're paying for that grain. They fixed the price. And so the grain came to Rome, but it came at a fixed price. Now, what happened was that some of the people who owned land that grain was on thought, I'm not going to make a living if I sell my grain at that price. So I'm not going to make grain. Because if I make grain, I have to sell it to Rome at a fixed price. I'm not going to do it. So I'm going to go ahead and plant olive oil, olive trees. Mm. I'm going to go ahead and plant grapes and vineyards because the wealthy will drink wine at whatever price I ask them to drink wine at. The wealthy will use olive oil at whatever price I need them to do it at. And so you now here's the problem. You have a, a certain amount of grain going to Rome at a fixed price. Then you have people making less grain because I'm not going to make grain. And now you have a, a lack of surplus of grain. And what does that do to the price of the rest of the grain? It drives it up, right? Supply, yeah. supply and demand. So now you have, a, you have a natural inflation happening in the Roman Empire. So the poor in, in Jerusalem, the poor in Antioch, the poor in Ephesus, the poor in Smyrna, they are having to pay a higher price for grain because of all the free grain that was going to Rome. Mm. Now you add in famines and in an empire the size of Rome, famines are going to hit Egypt or famines are going to hit Syria. Famines are going to hit Greece. They're just going to hit mm -hmm. 10 years, 15 years apart, whatever it might be. And what does that do? It means there's less grain available. So less grain available because less people are farming grain. They're making olive and trees and grapes. Less grain available because a certain quantity is going to Rome. The price is already jacked up, and now there's even less grain available because there's a famine in Egypt. The price goes up even higher. I think what this third seal is saying is, yeah, when you start wars, that also impacts the productivity and the violence that takes place from that. And it is nasty and very negatively impacting the poor throughout the empire. The wealthy are still, you know, I've said this before, Vladimir Putin is eating the same food that he ate a year mm -hmm. and a half ago when the war started. His lifestyle hasn't been affected yet. That's just what happens when you start wars. Dictators and those who start wars usually are not impacted. And maybe eventually they, they might be, but the people at the bottom of the pyramid are the ones who are impacted the most. And I think that fits very well with what's going on here. And it makes a lot of sense of this. Yeah. So question then to clarify as we finish yeah. up the third seal mm -hmm. when he heard what seemed to be a voice yeah. coming from the four living creatures so this be two questions he seemed to hear this from this from the throne of god is it actually the throne of god speaking and with that is what's being said a quarter of wheat for denarius three quarts for barley you know don't harm the oil and wine is this more of a sarcastic thing or is it like a uh or is it like the astonishment that these things are happening? Like, how, how should we interpret this? Uh, or is this the order from the seemingly voice on what you ought to do? I, I, I'm just trying to like yeah. figure out now that we have all these pieces in play. Okay, so so there's, there's two answers to the first question. And please don't take this the wrong way. It's actually the wrong question. Okay. And the reason why it's the wrong question is because we're trying to read this as though it's an actual event that's describing you know, what, uh -huh. and it's a narrative. And so John simply writing a narrative is like, I'm not sure where this voice even came from. So, so the second answer is, I'm not sure where the voice came from. It seemed to come from here, from amongst the four living creatures. Remember, God's uh -huh. actually not visible in the sense like he sees the manifestation of God. He only sees what the, the glory emanating from the throne. So I don't think it is a voice from the throne. And by the way, there are voices that come from the throne later on, and they're not necessarily identified with God. Mm. Uh, it's intriguing, by the way. So that's the first question, and that is that the voice is coming. It seemed to come like a, from the throne. It's just a literary device that John's using. But in terms of the way the nature of your question, it's just because John didn't know where the voice was actually coming from, if we want to literalize it okay. in that sense there. The second question was, it's just a voice, a prophetic voice of announcing. I, you'd almost would say judgment, but I don't want to use the word judgment here because it conveys that this is what God's doing to bring judgment there. It's a prophetic announcement saying, this is what's happening. And this is the way things are happening in the world as a result of the fact that human beings are in power. This is the chaos and the result of their chaos that they're bringing. And so it's just an announcement. Okay. Okay. Kind of, kind of like um, an announcement going through a land, like, you know, ringing a bell saying the British are coming, the British are coming. You know, yeah. Yeah. You're just making this proclamation. It's a, a proclamation being made. Okay. Okay. Good. Because in my mind, I was hearing 
it, it almost like as you're describing it it mm -hmm. sounds yeah. like this mocking thing yeah, like yeah. someone describing what they're doing yeah, um, i don't think it, i look at it that way i okay. look at it as more of a, a a town crier making okay. a proclamation yeah because i was hearing it almost like in a uh i'm gonna get total nerdy on you but like okay. in in les mis uh -huh. um where you have a master the master of the house guy so uh -huh. even in the master of the house song yeah, uh you know great. there's this, that scene yeah and it's like you know charge him for this charge him for that you know it is yeah. it's, it's like talking about uh, yeah i don't think it's like that. i think this is a town okay. crier going to the town yeah okay yeah. okay that's a, that's a good analogy though yeah uh i would sing it too but I've, as i've already uh dictated <laughs> yeah earlier. i would sing but my voice is a little, a little, a little <laughs> yeah. you need to save right it now. for your performance tonight that you're yeah, doing at yeah, the, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. the yeah. local theater when i'm on uh, yeah whatever network I'm, I'm i don't remember what it is yeah uh america's got no talent <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I gotta go back to my therapist again. America lacks you talent. Just did it to me. Here's you just, Rob. You just triggered win. me, Vinny. You, that's a trigger. All right, I, um, I'm texting my therapist right now. See if they have an appointment at ten. We hope you're enjoying the podcast, and we want to remind you that everything we do at Determined Truth, the podcast, Rob's blog, and our YouTube channel, is available on the Determined Truth app. Directions on how to download the app is available in the show notes and on the DeterminedTruth.com website. Just click on the app tab. The fourth seal, verse seven. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, come. And I looked and behold, a pale horse and its rider's name was death and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. Man, this is if, if it wasn't scary before, like death and Hades, that freaks me out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And. I think the best way to take the fourth seal here is that it's simply a summary of the effects of the first three. Of course, you note that like war is kind of at is here and the sword uh, and famine. So pestilence is added and wild beasts are added. But the reiteration of the sword and famine, I think simply just simply this is a summary of catastrophic effects of human government and of human rule. Mm. So, and we yeah. see death and Hades. That's a phrase we see later in chapter 20. Should we be linking those at all? Or uh... Yes. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. So death uh, and Hades, uh, death is the state of the dead. If we made a distinction between the two, I think we'd say death is the state of the dead and Hades is the place of the dead, but they might be used more just in, in parallel synonym, synonymously uh, with one another. So, okay. Yeah. All right. So this is a good place to pause and we'll come back next week and pick up with the seals. Uh, this episode, it, it's interesting because we've gone, you know, a, a normal amount of time, like almost an hour, uh, you know, 50 minutes, however long it's been. Uh, but we spent a lot of that time on the first seal. And so I feel like yeah, I, we once did, we yeah. kind of uh, laid that down, we were able to move a little uh, quicker through. Uh, so we're probably not going to spend as much time going through all these as we move into the, you know, finishing out chapter six and then uh, chapter seven, we just, I feel like every week we're going to maybe stumble across some more mm -hmm. theological landmines in terms yes, of yes. Uh, preconceived ideas. I, I know that the first time I ever looked at what we're coming up in chapter seven with 144,000, I remember yeah. having a conversation with you about this in oh, a car yeah. ride. And that was like, oh, oh okay. that's what you do with it. <laughs> and that makes a lot more sense. Uh, oh, so I'm excited yeah. about Because the Jehovah's yeah. Witnesses use this. Exactly. That part was the genesis of our conversation. Yes. Oh, yes. Good. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, is that's what we're looking yeah. at moving forward, just continuing to, to unpack uh, a lot of these ideas, right? Yeah. Yeah. So the next time we'll do the fifth seal and the sixth seal finishing up chapter six. And then we'll notice that the seventh seal doesn't occur until chapter eight. Mm -hmm. And so we'll discuss the seventh, uh, the interlude, what we call the interlude in chapter seven, which is the 144,000 and the great multitude, and we'll discuss what is, is this a last day's conversion of the Jewish people? But but just to reiterate before we finish up that the seals, I believe, are describing what happens when human governments remain in power, God's allowing them to remain in power out of his grace because he desires all nations to repent. We should be careful. In fact, we should not only just be careful, we should like not make distinctions between us and them. Christians are the good guys. They're the mm -hmm. bad guys. This is, the, this is God's wrath on the bad guys. This is not God's wrath on the bad guys. This is what happens when the bad guys are allowed to remain in power. And the bad guys, I don't even like using the phrase the bad guys here, but those who remain in power are empowered by the dragon and it's the nations of the world. And those in power bring war and famine and pestilence and death. And that radically affects the poor and the marginalized more so than it affects the wealthy and the upper class and the elite. It still affects them. Um, but, and that, that effect is felt by Christians. Christians are the ones who are the ones who are being slain. 
the false prophets are trying to deceive the Christians and famine affects Christians because they are the members of the poor, uh, the poor and the lower class. And so the question then becomes, well, how long are Lord, are you going to allow this to happen? And what do we do in the meantime? And we'll see that in chapter five. And I'm sorry, we'll see that in the fifth seal. And as we proceed through the story. Yeah. You know, it's interesting in, in a class I taught this summer, uh, I made the comment one day about how nations are the, are a result of the fall. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. And, and for, you know, like I started playing that out, you know, like North Korea, China, like no one's going to disagree with that. Yes. That's but right. then you start looking at all the other ones like France, Argentina, Canada, America, this is a result of the fall. Right. And it's, it, it's, it's, it was interesting how much discomfort uh, that produced in the room. Yes. And it was kind of an offhanded comment, but uh, it's like, no, it's, it's any people group that wants to have another King other than Jesus Mm-hmm. Like or another king other than God, like that is why you have nations, and nations are not going to last forever. And and so recognizing that, yeah, like you could be in this is the difference between patriotism and nationalism. We've talked about mm-hmm. that sort of thing, but nations are a result of the fall. Those are not God's intended plan for humanity. That's not the everlasting plan, and we need to recognize that. Uh, and so it's just interesting where it's it's easy to critique the the evil communist Marxist countries, but it's like nope, whatever passport you hold, that is also results of the fall and it's because we want kings that are not god and Uh, it doesn't make it evil or necessarily inherently bad it's it's you know we just what it is it's just what it is but what we need to understand is the danger of power Uh in in the nations and how it radically affects the poor and the marginalized more disproportionately to everybody else yeah but we also need to look at that and go what happens when I get power? What do I do? Mm-hmm. What happens when the church gets power? What does it do? Just look at the history of the church. Constantine Christianizes, Christianizes the empire. The church gets power. And what happens? It becomes corrupt. Yep. Or corrupt dead. It doesn't yep. like, not corrupt, not totally corrupt, but corrupt dead. And this is the danger. What happens with the, that's the danger of mega churches. They can do all these good things, but you get these pastors with power and now, um, wow, it can be bad. And, I, and it goes back to the parable of the sower. I think I've said that a few times. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mark chapter yep. four. Mark chapter four. I'm teaching them that in my men's Bible study next week. So nice. love that. Love that chapter. Yeah. Anyway, all right, everyone. Uh keep reading, keep studying. Read ahead and do the mm-hmm. do the homework. Say who who are the 144,000 in chapter seven? Uh who how would you identify that? And how have you been taught historically? That that's gonna be a fun uh week to go through, and then we'll finish up the seals as well. Yeah. But and send us your questions. Yes. Yeah, we haven't gotten to this in a while. So mm-hmm. all right, guys. We'll check everyone out later. Have a great week. I want to thank you for joining us on today's podcast, and we would love for you to share the work of Determined Truth with others. Please follow this podcast and give a review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Your review will go a long way towards helping others find this podcast. Then share it with others so that we can get the word of the gospel of the kingdom to more people.